If you have been here throughout Advent, uh, we've been in this series looking at the book of Isaiah, the different prophecies that uh, Isaiah offers us about Christ there. And on the walls here, you see there's some, I guess they're posters, banners. Maybe there's another word. I've never gotten it right. But we're on this one here in the far corner. This is Prepare the Way, Isaiah 40. Um, and we're going to kind of unpack that as it relates to uh, Christ's birth amongst us, which we celebrate tomorrow. So I want to start with... a. Uh, an axiom, sort of a truth statement, and then unpack that for you or with us together and then to help kind of set up that teaching. And here's the axiom. Our sense of who we are uh, is very much determined by the place we're in and the people we're with. So let me say it again. Our sense of who we are is very much determined by the place we're in and the people we're with. And this is known as place identity, if you're familiar with environmental psychology, which argues that beyond... The physical form of a place, like its topography or its terrain, or just if you look at this building, sort of the, f- the four walls and the lights and all that stuff. Beyond that, it's the experiences that we share in these spaces, whether they're negative or positive, as well as the people within them that have the most profound shaping impact on our lives, both as individuals as well as communities. Um, in fact, uh, there was a survey done at Cambridge University in 2017 that, argue, that found that, quote-unquote, meaningful places, as they put it, play this key role in shaping people's identity. So they surveyed about 1,000 people, and more than anything else, amongst all the factors they surveyed for, as many, about 67% of the people who responded or who were part of the survey in that study across all ages and stages said that a meaningful place at some point in their life uh, shaped who they are today. So think about it for a second. Can you think of a meaningful place in your life that has had an impact or shaped who you are? Just think of that. And because, here's the deal, because place has such a powerful shaping effect on us, um, when it changes, uh, when you're uprooted from where you you grew up, uh, when you're forced to move, when you transition from a school to another school, from a job to another job, when you face a catastrophe in your life, a divorce, a, a, a loss, a failure, you go through what's called a crisis of identity. That's, that's why we have that term, identity crisis. We just wonder now, who are, who are we? Because remember, remember, place shapes who we are. Because uh, the accustomed ways of, of finding worth and sensing significance are gone. They've been altered. Um, the stories of meaning that have unfolded our lives, people around us don't share those anymore. We don't fit. No one expects us to do anything for them. Uh, like when kids move away for college, I've heard this, not happened to me yet, you just wonder, who am I now? What do I do? Uh, no one needs you. You're not necessary. It, as they used to say on Cheers, or the opposite of it, and this might be a little bit of a dated reference for most of us, but some of us are going to get this. Nobody knows your name. Uh, that was a TV show back when they had TVs. Remember this? Okay. <laughs> so I can remember a time uh, back when I was uh, late going from uh, high school or from uh, college to, to uh, I guess, graduation. <laughs> That's what you do when you get out of college. I was uh, back at my boyhood home in Spokane, Washington, and one of my good friends who I was actually on the phone with during this episode just walked in. So there we go. Didn't know you'd be here today, but I'm going to share this story. I'm laying on the boy- in my roof of my boyhood home. I'm, um, it's, it's 1995 or 6, something like that. So summer of my senior year, uh, before my senior year in college, and, uh, and my parents had just moved from Spokane, where I grew up, to Denver, because my dad and my, my grandfather, his dad, had this meltdown in their relationship. They had a business. That's another story. Um, so they'd moved, and they're trying to start life over again. 
And uh, so I'm going to be going off into the world, doing who knows what. I don't have any plans. I don't think I had a major at this point. I'm going through incredible life transitions. And, it, you, you know, all of us have gone through some, of, some form of this. Because uh, the boyhood, my, the house of my boyhood home, or my boyhood home, I'd grown up my entire life there, was now empty. It had been sold. The new tenants are going to be, uh, owners are going to be moving in in just a couple weeks. And so I'm couch surfing my way through the summer, staying with friends. It's dark. It was probably midnight or something like that. Um, and I just stopped by the old house just to check it out. Peek in the backyard, my bedroom window, the basketball hoop my dad and I put up when I was 13 in the driveway. It's late. And so I found a few five-gallon buckets in our neighbor's yard, stacked them end on end to climb up on the roof. And, uh, and how I got down is another story, actually, because <laughs> you can just picture. And so anyway, um, I laid there. And I'm contemplating kind of everything I've lost, and I'm disoriented, and I'm, and I'm talking to my friend Aaron. I'm literally homeless. Nothing's fitting. And now that I look back on that, um, that was like, I think, my first crisis of identity. Um, maybe not the first, but the first, first one where I really am cognizant of it. So much so emotionally, it just still brings tears to me, because I'm lost. I'm, I'm literally, I would feel lost for many years, actually. Um, and the reason I share this with you is because it demonstrates its common experience, uh, sort of a major theme of the Bible, and that's the theme known as exile. Um, it's a theme that is actually the backdrop. If you read Isaiah sometime, it, the backdrop for the book of Isaiah, a lot of the prophets, the backdrop is this, is this uh, experience of exile, and it lays the ground. If Isaiah is giving us prophetic vision for Christ, it lays the groundwork for Christ's life. He begins his life as an exile, had nowhere to lay his head. No room in the inn. Uh, and so when Israel is taken into exile in the year 587 B.C., the people, they're uprooted from this place, Israel, where they were born, that was promised to them, where their identity as a people of God had been shaped powerfully. Their temple is destroyed. Their walls of the city are laid to ruin. And they're taken to this place called Babylon, where the weather's not, not only the weather's different, the food's different, the faces are unrecognized, unrecognized, and the culture's strange. Nobody knows their names. Okay? And the key is, as, as one author writes, it's a dramatic instance there of what we all experience just simply by being alive in the world today. We're exiled from the womb, <laughs> and we have to enter the world. That's a form of exile. Everybody, everybody in the room, unless you're like a cyborg, okay? So you all were exiled at some point. And you're exiled from your home at an early age to go to school. You're exiled from school, and you do the best you can in the world of work. You're exiled from your hometown. You have to find a new home in a new state, a new city. How many of you were born and raised, have always lived in Seattle? Raise your hands. Well, there's quite a few of you. That means most of us weren't. It means you were exiled at some point in your life. Uh, and these experiences of exile, minor or major, they continue throughout your life. Changes in society, changes in government, changes in, in values, in your bodies, in your emotions, in your family. You're going to be with family tomorrow. Changes in marriage. <laughs> I mean, every one of us, you barely get used to one set of circumstances, and then you're forced to face and deal with another one. That's exile. And so here's the question I want to invite us to ponder today as we look at Isaiah 40. Are you in that place today? A place of exile? Um, are you exiled from your dreams, your vision for your life, the place you thought you'd be living? I mean, maybe this is the place you hoped you could always live, how you thought your life would be going. Uh, I mean, if the, is the culmination of Advent, Christmas tomorrow or Christmas Eve tomorrow, more like the day of reckoning that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 39, just two verses earlier, where Isaiah says to the 
Hezekiah, the ruler of Israel, listen to this. Hear this, Hezekiah. The time's come. Everything in your palace, all your family, your nation is going to be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. You feel like nothing in your life is left. It's all been carried off. Um, If that's you, or if you can agree, that's us collectively, that we're like Israel, then I just want to invite you into this um, conversation, how God speaks to us in exile, um, what God does for us that are facing exile, and then kind of what God offers us, okay? How he speaks to us, what he does, and how he offers that. And how I want to unpack that is, is this. Uh, there's an outline in the bulletin, but I'll share it with you. God speaks a tender word of comfort in verse 1 of Isaiah 40. Um, God prepares a highway for encounter in verse 3. And then God attends to all those in his care in verse 11, okay? So he speaks, he prepares, and he attends. Okay, we'll do that, and then we'll respond so first, verse 1, God speaks a tender word of comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Whenever something's doubled in Hebrew poetry, this is poetry, it's very important. The word comfort is very important. And that's a word from the medical community, actually. It's, it's modern-day equivalent as palliative care. Uh, so it's the strand of medicine dedicated to comforting people. I don't know if you've been or received palliative care before. It's not just for people who are going to die. B.J. Miller, he's one of the world's leading palliative care doctors, kind of talks about this a little bit. He's an amazing TED Talk that he gave. It had, I think, 8.3 million views to this date. Um, and he shares his own story there, which appeared in the New York Times Magazine about a year or so ago where I read it for the first time. And it's a story of losing both of his legs and one of his arms in college, um, sophomore year in college. He's back east at Princeton where I went to um, seminary, and he's on Thanksgiving break or back from Thanksgiving break hanging out with some of his buddies, like college boys do. They're just being stupid. And they decided to climb atop a parked commuter train. It's called the Dinky in Princeton. It goes from New York City to, or from Princeton to New York City for people going up there for work. I've actually ridden this thing hundreds of times. And so he's just, it's just sitting there, middle of the night, and it has those wires that run overhead, kind of like our buses do in Seattle. And there's a ladder on the back. You can kind of see where this is going. So he decides, hey, let's climb up, and climbs up it like you would a jungle gym on the, on, in the park. And he says when he stood up up there, he had this metal watch, like a Rolex-type watch on. And the electricity from the, the wires arced to the watch, entered his arm, blew out of his legs, 11,000 volts. He survived. Uh, he says he woke up days later in the emergency or the burn unit of uh, St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey, thinking that he'd resurfaced from some dream. Uh, and so he's got to go to the bathroom, and he wants to get up and get out of bed, but he realizes when he tries, he can't because he doesn't have any legs. Doctors have amputated his legs. They're so badly burned. And, uh, but he still had his arm, but he could feel this, even with the morphine, this immense pain in his arm. And he looks over, and he's told by a nurse, a palliative care nurse, <laughs> they're going to need to remove that. We don't think you're going to survive. So he laid there for weeks, as good as dead. No visitors could come in to see him, totally alone because of the risk of infection. And they decide to amputate his arm. And on the morning that they're going to amputate his arm... Uh, they wheel him into this hallway, about a 10-foot-long corridor, and everybody he knows is in this hallway. They're all in the, you know, the, the scrubs you can wear in, like, hospitals completely. Everybody he knows, just lying in the hallway, single file. And Miller says that he remembered thinking to himself in this moment, this, com- this moment completely reframed his life, because they all dared to show up. Um, and he says they dared to look at me. He was not pretty to look at. Because you can think, there was burns all over his body. These are just the worst of them. And he says that in doing so, they're proving to him that he was lovable 
and, and worthy of love, worthy of receiving love, which is this moment he says in his TED Talk that forever changed his life because he realized that, that though his life would be forever different, no legs, one arm, uh, it wasn't over. And it's this realization that, he, that every person in this room on the planet Earth is, is, deserves comfort. He needed comfort. And he received that, this reframing, this comfort, simply by people showing up in his life. In other words, he talks, when he talks about palliative care, he says it's a commitment to bring comfort to all people, um, to help people see that suffering is actually just a variation on a theme that we all deal with. That death is not the end of life, it's part of life. It's, not, it's something you all experience at one point. Death, loss, whatever it is. It doesn't matter your age, stage, station in life. You're all experiencing it at some level. And that to get through that, to experience the transformation that he experienced, what you need is comfort. You need somebody to show up to communicate to you that you're worth, worthy of love. A sick person needs that because they're being separated from their health and their vitality. A bereaved person, which is where we often think of comfort coming in, needs that because they're being separated from their spouse, their child, their friend psychologically. And the exile, which is us, needs this because we're separated from country, culture, and true identity. We're just separated. So God speaks a word of comfort to his people. Comfort, comfort my people. Now notice how God does this. This is really important. God says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Verse 2. That expression, to speak tenderly, if you read it sometime in the Hebrew, which I know you're all going to do, literally means to speak upon or over Jerusalem's heart. Speak onto, speak onto Jerusalem's heart. That's a beautiful image. Um, That's what the word tenderness means, to speak into the heart. Now, I've talked about this before, but um, the heart in Hebrew thinking, it's actually more the mind than the emotions. We think of the heart we think warm fuzzies, we think touchy-feely, we think hugs and unicorns. Um, that's not the heart in Hebrew thinking. The heart, speaking to the heart in Hebrew, is actually is, is speaking to the mind. It's, it's, if you read the context of Isaiah 40, it's like God giving Jerusalem some facts to chew on. Here's some things that are true. Uh, this is why God's often giving Israel, if you read the Psalms, their history. Remember, 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 because that's speaking to the heart. God's comforting Israel in the midst of exile, throughout the Bible, really, by just stating some plain facts. So, verse 2, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim her warfare is over, her sins are paid for. She's received double from the Lord's hand for all her sins. Just some facts. In other words, God's just saying, time's up. Exile's over, your hard service is complete. Which, by the way, it's a reminder, just a side note here, that their exile was a time they chose. It's a natural consequence. We talk about this with our children quite a bit. Not punishment, uh, though, you know, I'm I'm probably parsing words here, but it's a consequence of their covenantal disobedience. The prophets, for hundreds of years, you read them, they had given warning upon warning upon warning that if Israel continues to break the covenant that they'd made with, with Abraham, the turning from God, worshiping idols, they're making a choice as individuals and as a nation. To re- they're rejecting God, and there's a threat of exile that's hanging over their heads for decades, and that will become a reality. And so God doesn't want there to be any confusion of why they're in exile. It's not that God's mad at them. It's, it's in, and so this is why God doesn't say in some vindictive way, are you sorry for your sins? God doesn't say that. Like, have you learned your lesson? <laughs> Are you going to change the way you're acting now? I mean, God doesn't talk like this. God says, enough is enough is enough. It's over. 
you faced enough. You faced enough. I mean, this is why Jesus says from the cross, it's finished. It's enough. And it's over with. It's done. So God's comfort is tender speaking. It's, um, it's a demonstration of, of mercy it, it, to people who've suffered deeply. Um, and, of course, the Bible's full of stories like this, where you can see this. My favorite is in the New Testament, Luke chapter 15. And it's the story of the prodigal, the so-called story of the prodigal son. Um, actually, some people have described it as the story of two lost sons. Because if you read the story, both sons are actually lost. Both need comfort. One suffering from the act of rebellion, the prodigal. The other from the, the effects of religion, uh, this older brother. And so both need this word of comfort spoken to their hearts to heal them. And what's interesting, if you look at that older brother for a moment, look at how, look, notice sometime, read it sometime, how the father, who's God in the story, do, what he does for this younger son. I mean, for the, the older son. Just like the younger son, who he ran out to, remember this part of the story, runs out to him, kisses him, ro- puts a robe on him and a ring, and says, I'm going to throw a party. He, he does something very similar to this older son. So he goes out to him as well, into the field. And, uh, and the son is sort of seething with bitterness and anger because he's seen and heard what's happened with his brother. And what does he say? The father to his son in, in 15, uh, Luke 15, 31, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Uh, it's like he's saying, thank you that you stayed home. And by the way, the Greek word for son here is really important. It's this word technon, which means my child. It's, so it's, a, it's a tender expression. He's not mad at his older son. I get mad with my kids sometimes because they don't behave. They don't treat each other well. They, they kind of act immature. <laughs> and uh, I wonder where they get that from. Anyway, so <clears throat> he's not that way. He's not angry. He could have been. He probably should have been. He speaks tenderly. With the same compassion, he shows his younger, rebellious son. Both are broken. Both need comfort. And so he goes out to both, and he says, My child, thank you that you stayed home. Everything I have is yours. It's all yours. It's free. It's yours. And he says, I appreciate your hard work. He's speaking tenderly. Your brother's home. Here's some facts. He was lost. He was as good as dead, and now he's alive. That's some facts for you to chew on. Let me speak tenderly to your heart. Time's up. Enough is enough. Our family has been suffering Let's be a family again. That's what he's saying. So tender speaking is uh, the power to reconcile, to heal relationships. That's what we've been given. That's why we read from 2 Corinthians 1 this morning, the comfort that we're given, the power to speak, heals communities. And so we have a lot to learn from Isaiah 40 here. Tenderness is strong. It's not weak. It's challenging. It's energetic. It builds strength and energy in individuals and community. It's, It's redemptive. Word of grace. Comfort, comfort my people is redemptive, has the power to restore communities like ours. That's what God's comfort does. And so uh, it frees us to be able to, to look at people in our lives with the same, te- to mirror the tenderness of Christ, who is the person of comfort, and tell them your warfare is ended. Your warfare is ended. You don't need to fight anymore. You don't need to strive anymore. You've been delivered from your fear of, of being alone forever. Your sins are forgiven. There's nothing you, could, you need to do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Um, you can rest in God's love. That's what God does or says when he comes through the person in your life and speaks comfort. That's what comfort sounds like. 
And so it's healing relationships. Have you heard a word of comfort at some point in the last month or two? Or I hope you have. We have this opportunity to speak that. This Christmas, you're going to have people in your life tomorrow and the next day, and you'll have an opportunity to speak comfort to them. Um, and that's why Christ was born. Uh, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. That's number one. Here's number two. So that he's, God speaks tenderly. Number two is he prepares an encounter. And in verse three, uh, in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the wilderness, in the wilderness, a highway. This is like John the Baptist in our reading from Mark. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. And it's interesting that in the midst of this context of exile that I've just talked about, Isaiah now casts a, a vision for a king who's coming, one who's going to deliver the people. So speak tenderly, do this, all of its preparation for this king who's coming. And, and that vision's all over Isaiah. Any listener to this passage, both in the Old Testament, I think even John the Baptist listeners would have heard this. They would have known Isaiah 40. They would have recognized that this is the moment that the Messiah, the king of Israel, is now coming. Because kings, when they went to another part of the kingdom that, that, that they'd never been to or that they just conquered, an army gone ahead of them, conquered for them, they didn't use the regular roads. This is actually uh, true if you read ancient Near Eastern literature. They built highways, new highways. So we have this inscription from this ancient Babylonian manuscript that's this announcement of a king. I don't know which king, but he's going to another part of his kingdom. And here's the announcement. Make his way good. Renew his road. Make straight his path. Hew him out a new track. Sounds just like Isaiah 40. In other words, build him a new highway, okay? Because kings don't go on old highways. Uh, I mean, can you imagine if we had a king, I guess, going down I-5 in the middle of rush hour. Like, you, you know, when our president comes to Seattle, the freeway closes down and then you're stuck. And that's like every day here. But, um, <laughs> but that's kind of the idea. So the king doesn't use old roads, builds a new road. And, and so this, the answer is that this, the reason that he does this, actually, is really important because the building of of these new roads, these new highways, is, is actually what kingship is all about because it symbolizes both the authority of that king as well as the healing influence of the king. So the authority, because this is going to cost a lot of money. Like, if you could imagine building a new freeway. <laughs> this is all too real, right? A new freeway in Seattle would be really awesome. Um, well, the, the dig, the big, you remember the, the thing that's not open yet, the tunnel, Bertha? Man, how many billions was that? So it's going to cost a lot of money to do this, especially in the desert where it's all dirt and there's not infrastructure to support it. It's going to take time and money and only somebody with a lot of authority to open up the coffers of the kingdom can do that. That's a king. But also his healing influence. So because in Hebrew poetry, these valleys and mountains and rough ground are actually not just um, literal, they're symbolic. All poetry kind of is. And so it's symbolic of the hard life that Israel's been living Certainly, they've been living a hard life in Babylon, but it's also symbolic of the, the, the sort of the nature of that life. It, they're away from their true home. Um, and so this king is bringing them home to their true home. Uh, they're in the wilderness, sort of, so to speak. It's impassable. It's dry. There's chasms and mountains in their lives. So God's making that passable and renewing it and making it like it bloom, as Isaiah says elsewhere. So he builds a road into this desolate, dangerous place, makes it safe. 
So it's all about transformation is what it's about, which is actually where Isaiah's prophecy kind of bursts the banks because when a human king came, they built a road over the desert. You know, you build a road over, if you go ever, ever go under I-5, you just build a road over it, over the city. And what's under that is still kind of desolate, if you've ever been down there. Tent cities and a lot of violence. And you remember, so what this says is that the king is coming, building a road, and tr- literally transforming the desert. Deep crevices are, are going to be lifted up. Uh, canyons filled in. Mountains, topography changed. Remember, place changes you. It, 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 for, it forms your identity. God's going to change this place, this rough ground of your life, so that you have a new transformed identity in God. So there's this king coming from outside of our world, <laughs> this true king with authority and healing influence, um, and he's going to come and do this. I can hear somebody in the room saying, awesome, <laughs> I don't see that. Not in my life, not in our city, not in our world. I mean, it sounds like the stuff of legends and fantasies, like kind of the, like Lord of the Rings type thing. And it's not helping me today. I am in exile. I was so with you earlier in the sermon, Jack. I need that king today. Like tomorrow, my family's going to be there. I need that king. And I'm glad somebody had the courage to say that because uh, you're right. Someday, this king is going to come. Doesn't help anyone. Like when we're, le- and actually that's really, <laughs> when we're less to our own devices, I think one of our commonest ploys in the church, we're guilty of this, is, is to sort of speak this way. Don't feel so bad. Like you're, they're in a better place. You're going to be in a better place. It's going to be better by and by, right? We talk about someday. But notice in Isaiah 40, God doesn't talk about someday. He talks about today. God says in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare is present tense. It's present tense. He says, don't build castles in the sky. Don't construct an elaborate elaborate fantasy world you can live in someday. Don't build a road that nobody can walk today. Uh, In the wilderness, prepare. Right here, right now, when and where you feel most lost, most alone, most uncomfortable, when and where your life is the roughest. Babylon. Here in Seattle. Here in the middle of deep midwinter, or I think winter just started. <laughs> Comfort is not stored up for some remote, distant future. This is what I'm trying to say. Comfort focuses on the present. It's a particular local present. It's in the wilderness, this dry, colorless, featureless Babylonian desert that is your life and my life. That's where the highway of God must be built. Because remember, it's, it's about God's authority in our lives and God's power to transform it. It's only when God's highway is built that your life will change. So don't try for some magic carpet ride escape to heaven someday. Prepare is, is God saying, I'm coming here now into your life. I have promises and, and power to change things, to alter the landscape. Will you allow me to do that? That's the question. So that person who said, hey, it doesn't help, is also saying probably, great. But, but how? Like, I, I've heard this before, Jack. It sounds great. How does God show up in the wilderness of my life? I'm still experiencing it. I don't know exactly what that looks like. So how can we prepare the way of God for our lives here and now today? And how could we be like highway people, acting by our presence, like I talked about earlier, to, to raise level ground, to raise ground and lower valleys and smooth the rough terrain for other people that are suffering? Um, 
Well, there's this, there's this scene from the book of Job I, I stumbled upon earlier this week that illustrates this really well. This is just after Job kind of begins that journey of suffering. He loses his family, loses his wealth, loses everything. He's covered in sores. You remember this, if you've heard this story before? And it says that he's being afflicted. His, Job, his friends, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they kind of hear about it. And we think of them as they just talk too much and they give them a lot of unhelpful counsel. But actually, before that all happens, they kind of set out from their homes, kind of like the three wise men. It's really interesting, actually, if you read it in terms of Christmas. They meet together. They go to Job to sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they see him from a distance in Job 2, they can hardly recognize him. They're like his best friends. And they begin to weep aloud. And they tear their robes, they sprinkle dust on their heads, and they sit down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and say nothing for a week. Because, it says in Job 2, they just saw how great his suffering was. So that's a picture of Christ. They identify with Job so deeply they became like him in his suffering. Hebrews tells us that Christ did this. They became ashen and silent and still. The Bible talks about Christ doing this for us. Christ in Philippians, who didn't count equality with God as something to hold on to, but gave it up so that he become like us, suffer for us, become so obedient to the death that it was to the cross. So Job's story reminds us that for all people in the middle of their pain, God is actually found in the, in the silent affection of other human beings. It's a highway for God in people's lives is just sitting with them in their suffering and just being present and helping to awaken them uh, to what's most vital and real and possible for them because of Christ's presence. And there's a lot of other ways that highways can be built in people's lives. Friendships are just one. I think they're the, one of the best, but uh, you could find it by uh, baking bread, actually. Uh, you could find it by tending your roses in your garden. You could find it by going on long, slow walks through the woods. You could find it when you find yourself draw, drawn to a painting or reading or poetry, you could find it when you just need to be alone, like really alone without addictive props or escapes, just sitting. Um, there's so many ways that God builds highways to us. And, and the reason he does this is because he longs to speak to our hearts in our wilderness and change our lives. That's why. God wants to change your life, so he needs a highway to do it. So that's number two. God prepares a, a space for encounter, okay? Here's the last one. This will be really quick, and then we'll respond. It's that God um, attends to those he cares for. So he, he speaks a word of comfort, prepares a space for encounter, and then finally attends to those he cares for. This is at the very end of the, the chapter in verse 11. Let me start with verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. So he's a king. He rules with a mighty arm. His rewards with him, his recompense accompanies him. Verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads all those who have young. So there's a a metaphor switch here from king to shepherd. Christ is like the shepherd king. And the reason for that is that um, because God speaks a tender word of comfort but also prepares a highway, he kind of is is like a Venn diagram sort of. (laughs) God being both of those, um, that's what a shepherd is. Powerful leader, ultimate comforter. And that's why we have pictures of shepherds in the Bible. And, and that's why Jesus is often calling himself a shepherd, the good shepherd. So he, does, he doesn't leave us to our own defenses. I mean, sheep are defenseless. They're the only 
creature I've discovered that have no natural defense. Like they cannot defend themselves. They're, they get lost, they die, they're, they're exiles on planet Earth. So God enters into that and works on our behalf as a shepherd. He tends to us. So he takes care of our wounds. He, he provides for us. He protects us. Uh, he gathers us in his arms, carries us close to his heart. Have you ever stopped? Do this with your kids tonight, if you have kids, or your spouse, or a friend, I guess. <laughs> Maybe they might be a little awkward, but do it. Have you ever stopped and just listened to the heartbeat of another person? Just like lay your head on their chest and listen. There's really powerful scientific studies about this. The calming effect of a human heartbeat. This is why babies, when they're held close to their mother's heart, quiet down. And when the stranger holds them, they freak out. There's actually other reasons when I hold babies that they freak out. But um, just to pardon the pun, but God is revealing the heartbeat of intimacy here to us. He, he gathers us in his arms and carries us close to his heart to calm fear, to clear anxiety, to create space for, safe space for, for healing and growth, close to his heart. If you haven't gotten close to God's heart, you're not going to experience healing and growth and comfort. You're just not. Here's the third thing. He gently leads those who have young. A lot of us in the room can identify with this. We've been given responsibility for people in our lives. We have children. We watch children. We're professionals in the workplace. We have young employees Millennials, I'm kidding. So a lot of you are millennials. Man, they're just uh, frustrating. Um, we have vulnerable people in our lives, people who are less mature than us, with less wisdom, less experience, less... We just, and we fall short of the mark. We don't lead them well, not as parents, not as professionals, not as friends. We fall short. We fail. And so God says, it's okay. Let me lead. He gently leads those in our lives, the young, for us. He cares for our young. He shows us how he does it. This is Matthew eleven twenty eight from the message. Come, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, who have young, <laughs> and I'll give you rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Just learn the unforced rhythms of grace from me. Let go. I don't know if, if you have kids, if you've ever just let go of your kids and the, the need to provide everything for them and do everything for them and to be everything for them. If you just let go of that, that need, because God has said here, he gently leads those who have young. He's got this. He's got this. So God attends to us in our, our deep moments of wilderness. And so I want to invite us to come back to an idea here, and I'll invite our worship team up now. And that's this idea of encounter, this highway. Um, I want to actually invite us to meditate for a moment on how Either God is comforting you in this moment or how you need this. Maybe as you head into Christmas, uh, invite you to sort of let God care for you for a moment. Like, do you need him to protect you right now? Like, you have wounds, you need him to bind you up. Uh, Do you need him to gather you in his arms and just listen to his heartbeat? Maybe that's this afternoon. The game's not until tonight. (laughs) So, like, we have time this afternoon to rest and receive peace. Maybe you just need to know that you're not alone in this journey. You are not alone with your responsibilities. You're tired, a lot I can see you. You're overburdened. I see some of you yawning. You're a leader. And, and so being human in this world is hectic and crazy. And you just need that, 
you need God to take over today. And so uh, I talked about encounter and ways we encounter God, the highways. One of the ways I most deeply encounter God is through this dear friend of mine um, and when he leads us in worship. And so I called him like on Tuesday and said there's this song that I'm really enjoying right now by this guy named Pat Barrett. And uh, I think he wrote that Good Good Father song. He has another new song called Be Still My Soul. And uh, that song has been a sort of highway for God, for me, in these last weeks. So, you know, tired, anxiety, inner turmoil. And so God's come to me in it, and through this, like, song. So I called Andrew and said, hey, can you learn this? I know it's busy week. <laughs> can you learn this song and then offer it to our community today? And without even hesitation, he's like, yeah. And I got to hear it earlier this morning, and it's beautiful. So how do you need God um, to comfort you? Would you receive this as a, a moment of just restoration as you head into Christmas? Tomorrow, we'll sing a lot of Christmas carols and stuff. So there's that. Don't worry. And we'll finish with one more carol today. So as your kids come in. Uh, let's take a moment to pray. Father, thank you that you are so good to us. And that uh, the, the, the last vision that we get this Advent of your son Christ um, is of a comforter, a tender speaker, uh, a shepherd with uh, authority to change our lives. So God, would you be those things to us now as we allow music to minister? Um, Would you allow us to encounter you, uh, to hear your heart, to let go of our lives a little bit, to experience some rest? Thank you that Christmas uh, is this profound moment of redemption and that we're just, just peeling back that curtain today, God, to see the beauty of it. Help us to wait in this moment, though, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.